welcome to the podcast. This podcast is where sermons, messages, and other presentations from Christ Community Church in Brawley, California are posted. For more information, you can go to www.cccciv.org and select the Brawley campus or find us on the App Store. Let's get started. We're starting a new sermon series on spiritual warfare. And right away when we say that, Right away, you're thinking, oh, man, that seems like something that is, you know, do, we, do Christians still believe in that type of thing? Is that something that, you know, we're, we're in the 21st century now? Aren't we moving beyond, you know, this idea of, of the, you know, spiritual powers? Um, there was a, a time where C.S. Lewis was talking about the existence of the devil. And he, he said, you know, some people ask me, ask me, you know, do you still believe in this devil, you know, with horns and forked tail and, and all? And Lewis basically says, you know, I uh, don't know about the horns and the forked tail, but I do know that there is an enemy. And it's something that we can maybe understand, but do we, do we apply this in the life? If we believe as Christians that there are spiritual realities, that there are things that we can't see that impact our, our lives, how are we living in accordance with that truth? And and if you're here today and saying, ah, you know, I, you know I, maybe I can believe in God and, and believe in Jesus, but I don't know if I can believe in the existence of some kind of spiritual personified evil. Uh, real quick, what I would say to you is if there's spiritual goodness, if there's a reality that includes spiritual beings that are good, why can't there be something that exists that may not be Good as well. Now, Christianity does specify that the, the spiritual evil and the spiritual good are not equal. They're not uh, dualistic where you have good and bad and they're constantly fighting. We see that God is exalted overall, but there are spiritual powers at work trying to undermine God, but only according to God's purposes. And so uh, last week, we looked, we looked at just the, some basic facts about spiritual reality, uh, spiritual warfare, how that should influence us here today. Today, we're going to look at some of the specific tactics, the approaches that spiritual darkness can wage against the believer, wage against Christians. And, and as I describe this, I'm hoping that we'll resonate with this and see and hopefully find some understanding and what we can experience uh, may have some connections with the spiritual world that we inhabit. So, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament, kind of towards the end. Uh, he's one of the uh, later prophets, Zechariah, chapter 3. And uh, here, we're going to consider... Uh, this, this vision that Zechariah has. He's, he's had this, these several visions, but in chapter three, he is granted a, a new vision and he's able to, he's kind of given like spiritual, you know, uh, glasses, so to speak. He's able to see the spiritual realities that are present in the world around him. And so in Zechariah chapter three, one through six, we're going to be able to join with Zechariah in seeing some of these spiritual realities at play. And, and what we have to recognize is we get a glimpse into the demonic, into the, the spiritual darkness that is contending against the people of God. And, and the three points that I want to bring out of this text here today is this, that Satan and, and his forces, so to speak, uh, we, we see his work in three ways. That is, we see Satan as 
a tempter, Satan as an accuser, and then we find who can be our advocate. And so Satan as our tempter. So let's read Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So at this time, there's an angel kind of as uh, Zechariah's tour guide, so to speak. And now here's the, the next vision. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Joshua is standing before this angel of the Lord. Satan is at Joshua's right hand as an opponent to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, and to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So we'll just pause right there. We see here that there's this like kind of like a divine courtroom going on, that there's this judge, the angel of the Lord, and then there's the defendant, Joshua, the, the high priest. He was very important in the process of rebuilding the temple after the Jews came back to the promised land. And, and Joshua is the defendant, and then there's the prosecutor, Satan, and Satan is at Joshua's right hand making accusations against Joshua. So you have this, this court scene, and we see right away uh, that Satan is there to accuse. Now, we, we would say that Satan, the word Satan, literally means accuser, and this is what Satan aims to do. As we mentioned last week, there's nothing that Satan can do directly against God. There's no power that the, the devil has in order to be able to do anything that God does not permit. But uh, Satan will try to attack God through God's people. That is through uh, those who entrust themselves to God. And this is what is happening here, that Satan is accusing one of God's basically representatives on earth, the, the high priest Joshua. Now, Satan, of course, wants to accuse uh, God's people, but don't think for a moment that Satan is just going to kind of wait for us to mess up before he points out our sin. No, he's not going to just merely wait for us to sin. He is going to be proactive in trying to get us to sin, and that's where we see Satan as tempter. This is the other word that is used in the Bible about Satan, that he is one who tempts. In the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus says uh, that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, referring to Satan. And so temptation and Satan are, are very closely tied together. Now, there's no doubt that we don't need uh, spiritual evil like Satan or other, other forces like that in order for us to be tempted. James, we, we looked at that book, and James says that it's also our own desires that tempt us. But Satan isn't just going to be kind of holding, you know, in the background, waiting for us to sin, and then he'll come and accuse us. No, he wants to to get us to sin. And we see here uh, that, that Joshua is described as wearing filthy garments. And this is Satan's purpose for us as well. He wants to get us dirty so that he can accuse us. So this, this first point, 
Satan tempts us, we have to recognize how Satan wants to make this happen. And here's, here's the first thing that I would say, that uh, we, while we do sin on our own, Satan is, is proactive here. And he, this temptation that we can enter into, we, we don't enter temptation right when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to be disobedient. Uh, we're actually, we enter into temptation when we start to be obedient out of resentment and bitterness. That is, we're, we're doing what God calls us to do, but we, we are bitter about it. We're resentful. We, we struggle. We see this with uh, Eve in the garden, that God gave her the command, hey, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and then Satan comes along and says, did God really say that? And what does Eve say? She doesn't say, well, God told us not to eat uh, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but she says that we're not even allowed to touch it, which isn't what God had said. God never said, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. But when you become tempted, you're, you're tempted to be obedient, but you start to over-exaggerate and become resentful of God's commands in your life. And, and we see this in, in various ways. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 26 through 27, we can, we can take a situation and just really hold on to it and make it bigger than it actually is. Uh, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what he's saying, sometimes it's appropriate and right to be angry, but it's when we hold on to that anger and we make that anger bigger than what it actually is that we give this opportunity to the devil to tempt us into sin. And so uh, I think there's, there's one aspect when we consider Satan's works that, that we need to also keep in mind is that uh, we know that we're not merely just fighting uh, or, or away from temptation, but we've also entered into temptation when we see how, when we, when we think that sin has lost its ugliness. That is, sin is no longer ugly or horrifying to us. The moment this sin that is presented to us becomes less than horrific, less than an atrocity against God, we've started to enter into temptation. Now, we may not give in to that sin, but the moment we start saying, well, that sin doesn't look that bad, that's when Satan has really become to dominate our, our thinking about this, when sin has lo lost its ugliness, when we say, you know what, you know that I'm angry, yeah, but you know, there's nothing really wrong with holding on to my anger. I have reasons to hold on to my anger. I have, I have legitimate uh, reasons to, to kind of keep this close to my heart and not let the anger dissipate or go away. When we get into that mindset, we have entered into uh, entertaining sin and that temptation. Um, I'm gonna, there's a, when we, when we think about Satan's schemes and ways that Satan can tempt us and accuse us, um, I think there's no resource that can compare sometimes with the Puritans. Um, the Puritans kind of get a lot of heat because they're typically understood as like legalistic and really rigid. And uh, actually that's, that's a pretty common misconception. And I wanna kind of show that here, but there's one book by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. And he wrote the book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he cites several ways that Satan can tempt us uh, to convince us that sin isn't all that bad. And here's some of the things that he cites. First, Satan will make sin 
look like a virtue. Satan will make sin look like a virtue. It's when we start telling ourselves, you know, I'm not greedy. I'm just really thrifty. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not obsessed with stuff. You know, I'm getting all the deals. I'm getting the discounts. You know, I'm good to go. I'm not greedy. No, no, that's not me. Uh, or when we say, you know what? I'm not bitter. I'm just really concerned. I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, holding on to resentment. I just want to make sure that there's you know, this, this situation is being taken care of. And we can, we can look at these things that are really sin, but we are convinced that, you know, this is actually a good thing for me to do. This is actually something I should pursue. So be careful about viewing sin as a virtue. Second, uh, Thomas Brooks says that we can focus on the bait instead of the hook, that this is what Satan is trying to do. That when we consider sin, we only look at the pleasure of it and not at the consequences of our sin. We don't look at the the problems that will come later. We just look at the pleasures that come now. And this is Satan's work to focus on the bait instead of the hook. Uh, Thomas Brooks then says, uh, the other thing that Satan is trying to do in us is reduce God to merely forgiveness and love and grace. The God that we worship is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, but that is in light of his holiness, in light of his truth, in light of his justice. But Satan wants to make God very one-dimensional. And he'll say, hey, you know, yeah, you know, God knows you're a sinner. He knows you're going to screw up. Uh, you know, there's this grace for what you're about to do. God, you know, is, is uh, that's why Jesus died on the cross was so that you wouldn't have to, you know, feel guilty when you do something like what you're about to do. And so uh, Satan will highlight certain characteristics of God at the expense of God's other characteristics. So watch out. Uh, Satan will also work very hard to show us, number four, the prosperity of the wicked. That is, we'll say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deny myself like Christ denied himself. I'm going to follow God's commandments for me. Well, Satan's going to start putting people in your life who don't follow God's commandments, who don't follow God's ways, who have no care about the things that are of eternal weight, yet they're living a life that maybe you wish you could live. Maybe they uh, have a job you wish you could have. They're making the money that you wish you could have. Maybe they've even got like family relationships that you wish you could have. And, and you, Satan will tempt us to think, man, I'm doing all these things for God. Why don't I get all these things? And this, this person has no regard for the things of the Lord, but he seems to be blessed. This is the exact problem found in uh, Psalm uh, 73 where the, the psalmist goes and he sees the prosperity of the wicked and says, man, have I, have I stayed faithful in vain? God, what's up with this? And this is what Satan wants to do. He says, hey, your obedience, your discipline, your, your commitment to obeying God, you know, it's not working out for you. Why don't you just uh, you know, do what you want to do and, and you'll be able to be as prosperous as, as these other people that you're seeing. And then finally, the last one he, he, uh, Thomas Brooks points out is that Satan uh, will make you overconfident, that he'll take the successes in your life, the spiritual successes, and then use them as a reason for you not to be on guard anymore. Uh, we see this with the life of Elijah. Um, he's, he's in the, in the, the Bible, he ha- has this battle between him and then these false prophets about who can call down fire from heaven. And in this incredible display, uh, the God of Israel answers Elijah's prayers and he brings down fire and 
Elijah just dominates, right? He's, he's the clear victor in this standoff between the prophets of God versus the prophets of idols, and he wins big, like just huge. Well, not even the next chapter, and Elijah is already running away for his life because he thinks that the political powers are after him. He's, he's scared, he's cowardly. And uh, we, we see this over and over again, that when someone experiences some kind of high in their spiritual walk, we can kind of say, man, I'm so tight with God, I'm so good. I don't need to you know, maybe spend so much time in prayer if there's other things going on. I don't need to you know, spend time with Christians. I don't need to be on guard of these spiritual attacks. And that's where Satan wants to lure us. And so so, and so Thomas Brooks brings out these ways that Satan can make sin look desirable, uh, good, and, and tempting for us. And, and when we sin, we become this dirty. We become this, this uh, like Joshua here, we have these, uh, so, these filthy garments representing our sin. And it's, this is, this Verse 3, where it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Uh, some commentators have said this is the most revolting uh, verse in the Old Testament. And why would they say that? Well, the word used for filthy uh, literally refers to human excrement, that is, like feces or vomit. So Joshua is wearing this robe covered in just the most vile and disgusting stuff you can cover yourself with. There's, there's nothing worse. Uh, this word is used in 2 Kings chapter 18, um, where there's a messenger going to the, the city that's under siege, and uh, he says this to them. He says, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung? and drink their own urine. That is, the, the word dung there is the same word uh, that's used for filthy here in our passage. And, and again, there's this, this truth that, that what Zechariah is trying to get to us is that sin is disgusting. Sin is filthy. It contaminates us. It makes us totally undesirable before a holy God. Um, and, and here's the truth that so often, we can be blind to how horrible and wretched our sin is. Uh, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like one of the things that I'm uh, like always wondering about is my like, breath and body odor, right? Like you, as you go about your day, like, oh, does my breath smell good? You know, have I, uh, do, my, do I need to reapply deodorant or whatever? Why? Because we are the last people to recognize our bad breath, right? We're the last people to see it because uh, we're so used to it. And it's the same uh, for, for sin, that our sins are so often a, a something that's old, dis- incredibly disgusting to others and disgusting to God, but we're blind to it. Now, don't worry. I, I'm here to like reassure you that even if you are for a moment blind and oblivious to how bad your sin is, uh, you've got someone looking out for you, and his name is Satan. He knows how bad you are, and he's going to bring it to your attention. He's going to bring it to the attention of God. I'm, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, by the way. Um, Satan will tempt you, and he will want to get you dirty. And then once you're dirty, once you are guilty, he's going to bring up all of it and bring it to your face and bring this accusation against you. So, Second point is how Satan accuses us. 
it's interesting because Joshua's this high priest and there's certain rules that the high priest has to follow when he enters into the presence of the Lord like he's doing here. Leviticus chapter 22, verse three says this. If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. What he's saying is that if, if a priest comes unclean, you're cut off from the presence of God. You don't have access. You've lost connection to God himself. And this is the reality of sin, is that when we are dirty with sin, the, the consequence of the law is separation from God. And this is how Satan kind of is able to work his schemes. He takes advantage of God's holy law and uses it to separate God from sinners. First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes uh, the relationship of sin and the law like this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, that if there is no standard of holiness, there's no standard of justice, no standard of truth, then who cares if we sin? It doesn't, doesn't affect our relationship with God. But if God is holy, God is just, then any sin on our part separates us from God because of his holiness. And so the power of sin is the law. That is, the, the way that sin is able to just destroy us and erode us and, and, and break us down is because God's law. That is, God is holy, God is good, and we do not measure up to those standards. And so Satan's accusations against us is not really overreaching or over-exaggerated. Satan doesn't come and say, well, you know, John Archer here, he murdered three people on the way to church today, God. Like, no, Satan doesn't come up with these extravagant lies. The way he's deceitful, the way he lies, the way is he emphasizes only part of the truth, but he emphasizes the law's demands that sinners should be cut off from God, and he accuses us on that basis. In verse uh, one, uh, we see this, especially with Joshua. Uh, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Satan is bringing the accusations like the prosecutor in court and he is the opponent of Joshua. And basically Satan's saying, hey, God, your, your holy righteous standards, here's what they require and now look at Joshua, look at Joshua, look how dirty he is, look how vile, look at how unclean he is. Do your thing, cast him away, send him away. He has failed, your, your, your chosen one has sinned and he deserves to be cut off, he deserves to die. And so this is, this is Satan's MO, this is Satan's way of, of attacking God and us. And he brings the same accusation saying, hey, you've, you've, done too much. You've sinned too much in order to be able to come to God. You, you just don't deserve God's blessing. You've, you've failed to measure up to that. And so this is what Satan's approach is. Now, it's really interesting. Um, when we think about ourselves and our sin, uh, very many Christians actually don't fully apply what the Bible says about us, but instead they take an approach that can actually be traced back to Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was uh, one of the like fathers of psychology. And, and basically what Freud taught was this, is that human nature can be reduced down to your animal 
instincts. That is, the realest part of you, the most true part of you, is your subconscious desires. Uh, and what he meant by that was, you know, we, we can say, you know, oh yeah, I, uh, you know, I care about the poor, but if we let uh, our animal desires come up, we unsuppress these desires, then we'll actually want to take. We'll actually want to, to take what's ours and, and, and be greedy and be consumed with our desires on this part. And so Freud said, you know, a lot of people suppress their desires, but the real you is the real, is the you that you are suppressing. And this runs directly counter to what the Bible actually teaches. I remember I was uh, talking to a couple they were going through some marriage issues. And, and one of the issues that they were facing was that uh, at one point, the husband had been involved with a lot of drunkenness. He had been uh, drinking a lot. And while drunk, he had said some incredible mean things and, and evil things to his wife. Now, since then, the husband had not uh, engaged in drunkenness at all, but the wife was still concerned because she said, okay, you know, my husband's been treating me nice. He hasn't been getting drunk. Uh, it seems like he's, you know, doing everything that a, a good husband should do. But I just wonder because that one time where he was drunk, did the real him come out at that moment? Was that the, the real him underneath it all when he came out? Was that, was that really how my husband thought of me and still thinks about me, but he's just suppressing it now and doing all these good things, but the real him deep down hates me and, and doesn't love me. And, and I think a lot of us as Christians can kind of have the same mentality. And here's the problem, that this is, this is very, I think, satanic in the sense that um, it, it only highlights and emphasizes one part of our human nature. There is this, this part of us that is uh, broken and evil and desirous, but the Bible calls this the old man. Um, here's how Paul puts it in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What, what it's saying there is that we aren't just our animal instincts. We aren't just these suppressed desires that come up. Uh, there's, there's two selves that are within us as Christians. We have the old self and the new self. We have the flesh and we have the spirit. And Satan wants to come to us and say, no, you're, you're just flesh. You're just old man. And, you, and these other parts of you, that's not the real you. The, the spirit in you, that's not the real you. The new creation, that's not the real you. You're just your old self. You're just these suppressed desires. And, and what I had to counsel to this couple was that, you know, there's these two parts within your husband, the, you know, the, the part that's being led by the spirit and part that's being led by the flesh. And when you're, when you're drunk, you can't be filled with the spirit. And therefore the old man, the flesh was able to rise up. And if you look at your husband and just reduce him to his old man, just reduce him to his flesh, then you are accepting what the devil says about human nature that, or, or at least Sigmund Freud, right? I don't know if they're the two are the same. But anyway, uh, it, there's, there's this reduction of human nature that the Bible does not teach. And so be careful about receiving this, this half-truth, which is a whole lie from Satan that we're, you're just your subconscious. And some of you feel extremely guilty because as you have walked your Christian life, there have been thoughts, there have been desires that have popped up and you feel 
man, is that what my heart's really like? Is that the real me deep down in there? To think such a thought like that, is that who I really am? And my, my initial encouragement to you is, no, you are more than just your animal desires, just your, your subconscious, more than just the old man. You are also a new creation as well. But Satan brings these accusations against us. And, and this is not something that he uh, has stopped doing. And we see a picture of this in Revelation chapter 12. It says, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So this is, this is Satan's MO is to tempt and to accuse. And so this is his, and this is why these two things are bad for sure. Like we want to avoid both of them, but the combination is what makes Satan's tactics incredibly brilliant. There, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play this down. Satan's operations of combining temptation and accusation together has absolutely devastated countless Christians. So let me, let me break down how these two things actually feed into each other. First, uh, Satan tempts us, and then he accuses us, and then it goes back and forth and back and forth. That is, Satan tempts us and says, hey, this sin, you know, it's not a big deal. You, you've earned it. You've, you've gone through a lot, you know, and, you know, God's going to forgive you. It's not that big a deal, and he appeals to your pride and, and your arrogance, saying, hey, you know, this is not a big deal. This is why Jesus died on the cross. Sin's not a big deal. And then when we give in to that temptation to sin, Satan comes with his second punch. Oh, look what you've done. How could God ever forgive someone like you? Don't you see that your sin is too big for God to accept you now? And he makes you feel so bad, so guilty, so ashamed that you are just devastated. And then he comes with the first punch again, the temptation. Hey, you're, you're looking for relief. You're looking for comfort for this pain that you're feeling. God's not going to help you out. Just, just sin over here. Just, just give in, you know, this, this little thing that you've done in comparison to the huge things that you've already done. This little sin's not much. It's small, you know, and God will forgive you for that. I don't know about this other thing, if God will forgive you, but this little thing, I think God will let you do that. And you give in to the sin. And then he comes back again with that second punch and accuses you. And it's the cycle over and over again. He makes you feel overconfident, feeling, okay, the sin's not that bad. And then he comes back and accuses and says, the sin is too bad. This, is, this sin is beyond anything that God can do for you. And so it's this cycle over and over again. And the whole time, Satan is appealing to your pride. Now, when I say that, a lot of people feel, okay, I can understand people being prideful when Satan tempts you because Satan's basically saying something along the lines of, hey, you've worked hard, you're, you're good enough. Yeah, that's not something you should be doing, but I think you've earned it. You're kind of appealing to that person's pride when, when you say that. But when Satan accuses us, he's also appealing to our pride. He's saying, what you've done is too great. That is, your ability to sin surpasses God's ability to forgive. And he makes you out to be more powerful than God himself. So there's a a arrogant type of pride, but there's also a self-pitying type of pride as well. And so Satan appeals to this over and over again. And some Christians are so locked into this cycle that they sin 
and they are tempted and so they sin. Then they feel guilty and, and of, of, God's, of Satan's accusation and then they sin some more and then they feel accused some more and this goes on and on. So I wanna break this down a little bit and just kind of identify some aspects and, and tempta- uh, symptoms to Satan's schemes here. Uh, first, when it comes to like Satan's temptations, what's going on is that sin is not truly horrific to us and that God's holiness is, is forgotten or downplayed. Uh, we, we see sin as not as an incredible affront to the holy God and we fail to recognize it. Uh, second, we've talked about this, that we drop our guard to successes, that when things go well for us, we have that pride and say, oh, I can handle this temptation. I don't need to be on guard anymore. And Satan's temptations have more power. Uh, when we're tempted, what else is going on is that we are beginning to resent God's authority. That is, we're telling ourselves, I can't be totally happy if I'm totally obedient. I, I can't be totally happy if I follow everything that God says. When that mindset has entered into our hearts, then we are in the middle of temptation. Here's a, I wanna kind of give a test case real quick. Let's imagine that you were convinced that the Bible taught that head coverings should be worn in church. Now, uh, Paul talks about that a little bit in uh, 1 Corinthians, and my understanding of that passage does not mean that women should wear head coverings in church, but we can talk about that later. But let's just imagine that that is what Paul was saying, that, that women needed to wear head coverings in church, and just so that we can be equal here today, let's also say that men had to wear head coverings in church. Let's say not only in church, but everywhere, all the time, Christians needed to wear something over their heads or they were violating God's commandments. Now, let's say that you are fully convinced that this is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. How would your heart react to obeying this. If you say, well, that's really gonna screw up my social life or that's gonna be so embarrassing to wear a a head covering as I go around. I I have trouble imagining how God could use this to make me happy. If that is our reaction, then we've started to give in to a mindset where we say, yeah, I can't be totally happy if I obey completely. And so we have to be on guard here that we don't view God's commands as obstacles to our happiness. Um, and when we're tempted, we're typically we're lazy. That is, we, can, we tell ourselves, oh, I can uh, do my Bible readings later or another day. I can catch up later. It's fine. We have this very lax attitude towards maybe our spiritual disciplines. And then finally, our conscience, when we're tempted, uh, especially as we give into temptation more and more, our conscience becomes hardened. Our conscience becomes dull. And, and, and we are unable to feel the, the points of sin's horror. Now, when it comes to Satan's accusations, uh, it's much of the same stuff. That is, uh, we, we have the mindset that God's grace is not real to us. When we're in the middle of those accusations, we say, man, I know, God, I, I know, you know Jesus died on the cross, but was that really enough to cover what I've done? We doubt God's grace and we doubt God's love. Uh, We drop our guard due to failures. We say, man, I've already screwed up. What's the point of trying anymore? We we resent God's grace. We say, man, I can't be accepted just as I am. That's, That's, I gotta do something to fix this. And we're very, instead of being 
lazy, we become very driven. We say, oh no, I missed my Bible reading this morning or this, you know, today. I'm, I, gotta, I gotta make it up, I gotta catch up. Many of you, I'm guessing, struggled with this dynamic of temptation and accusation even coming to church here this morning. There was maybe this battle saying, the temptation part saying, hey, you know, you've, you've, you've acted pretty good this week. It wouldn't be a huge deal if you missed out on church. Why not just stay home and watch the game or whatever? I don't know if there's a game. Um, some of you were probably saying, I don't know if I could go to church. I don't know if I could show up in that room after what I've done this week. And, and even in coming to church, there's this dynamic going on of temptation and accusation. And, and what happens is that uh, in, in temptation, our, our conscience becomes hard. We're not affected. But during accusation, our conscience becomes what the Bible calls disquieted. And it's an interesting word because it's so like chill. But really, the word disquieted means your conscience is roaring. It's inflamed. That is, every little thing seems to really like aggravate you. If you have sinned somehow, maybe, uh, you know, against your, your spouse and you're, you're accused and you're feeling guilty over it, someone comes up to you and says, hey, how's your wife doing? And you suddenly thinking, they know. They know what I've done, right? You become so, you think like everyone's accusing you of stuff and, and you're, you have this guilty conscience. And Satan loves this. Satan is, is wanting our conscience to be both hard and inflamed. He doesn't want us to have peace. But how do we break the cycle? How do we get out of the cycle of temptation, accusation, temptation, accusation? Well, we need to see what Joshua sees. Let's go back to verse two. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So it's, it seems just really interesting that uh, Joshua and Satan are standing before this angel of the Lord. And there's some debate on who exactly this angel of the Lord is. But here's what I, what I think. This angel of the Lord says, behold, in verse 4, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That is, there's this visible representation of God himself who claims that I will remove your iniquity. And so I don't think this is just an, an angel. Uh, I believe that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And there's some debate about that, but at least this, that this is not just a messenger of God. This is a, the representation representative of God himself who claims to take away sin. And, and when Joshua comes before this judge, he says, the judge says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This right, that verse right there is pure gospel because here's the truth. If Satan's accusing someone, my thought would be, you know, God will say, no, don't you see how committed Joshua is? Don't you see all the work he's done uh, rebuilding the temple? Satan, your accusations don't have any water. Or you can say, hey, Satan, don't you see how sorry Joshua is? How bad he feels for the sin? How dare you accuse him? The judge, this, this, this angel of the Lord, God himself, doesn't even mention those things. He's not looking at Joshua, he says, he's bringing the attention to 
the Lord, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, that's kind of embarrassing for Joshua, right? Joshua's basically calling this stick, this brand in the fire, can't pluck himself out. God has to come in and do it. And so God is saying, stop looking at Joshua and look at me. Look at what I have done. And this is the key for us as Christians, that we look not at ourselves, but look to Jesus. Because when Satan comes with his accusations, the key is not to say, well, I'm not as bad as you claim I am. The key is to say, I see my sin, but my sin is nailed to the cross. And even though Joshua was a priest, even Joshua needed a clean priest to save him. He needed a representative to advocate for him. And we see this in Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Jesus being this high priest for us. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the key to breaking Satan's schemes, the one-two punch of accusation and temptation. That is, we look to our high priest. I told you I'd, I'd bring up some Puritans, and so I just want to want to close with uh, this this Puritan, John Bunyan. He wrote the book called Pilgrim's Progress, and it's this uh, fictional account of a guy named Christian who lives in the city of destruction. He hears the gospel message, and he begins a journey to the city of Zion. And as he goes, he he. Uh, encounters the cross, his burden falls off, and he begins this journey trying to make it to the city of Zion. Well, eventually he gets to a place called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And he's walking, it's really interesting, uh, as he's walking, a demon comes up out of the pit and gets behind Christian and begins to whisper things in Christian's ear. And Christian feels terrible because these things that the demon's whispering are these blasphemies and evil things against God. And, and Christian says, man, how can my heart say such things? Why would, why would I say such things against my Lord, not knowing that these were the whispers of this, this demon in his ear? But as he's going forward, he encounters an opponent, the accuser, Apollyon the destroyer, a representation of Satan. And they're about to do battle, but first Satan is going to try to talk his way uh, to, to convince uh, the Christian what to do. And so Apollyon says, hey, why have you left my kingdom and my service? And Christian says, well, I've, I've found a new prince to follow, and uh, I'm, I'm living my life for him, and I'm, I'm under his authority now. And, uh, and not, not only that, but he's going to reward me. And then Apollyon says, how can he reward you after all your unfaithfulness to him? And Christian says, what unfaithfulness? And Apollyon says, well, uh, you know, while you're going along your journey, you disobeyed your instructions and got stuck in the swamp of despair. You were given important trinkets to carry with you, but you fell asleep and neglected them and you left them behind. And then when you were coming along, you saw some lions. And at that moment, your heart said, turn back. Your prince isn't worth it anymore. And on top of all these ways that you failed, 
in your obedience and all the things that you've seen and accomplished, deep down in your heart, you're doing it for your own glory. You're, you're doing it for yourself. There's a part of you that is corrupted. That is, your, you're not doing this for the glory of your prince. There's vainglory in your heart. And when I read that, I'm thinking, all right, so, so you know, Christian's going to respond and say, no, man, I'm doing this for God. I'm, I'm doing it only for him. I'm not, I'm not split in my allegiance. Or, you know, yeah, I screwed up. I may have left those things, but I went back and got them. Or I got stuck in the swamp of despair, but I, you know, eventually got myself out. What does Christian say? Here's, here's what he says. All this is true and much more besides that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve in honor is merciful and ready to forgive. That is, that is what we need to say as well. When Satan comes and accuses us, we say, everything you've said is true. In fact, there's things that you have left out, but my sin has been paid for. My sin has been uh, dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is the way that we fight Satan's schemes is that we look to Jesus. And John Owen put this so well. He said, when you are in the midst of that temptation, in the midst of that accusation, you need to ask yourself these questions. That is, we look upon Jesus whom we have pierced and we say to ourselves, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, and to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Have I, through infinite cost to Christ, now obtained access to the very presence of the Father that I might now provoke him to his very face? Shall I now work to frustrate the very end goal of all the mighty sufferings and torments and death of Jesus Christ? Friends, test your heart daily with such questions. See if it can stand before these aggravations. If this makes your heart not melt in some measure, I fear your case is dangerous. That's a warning to us as well, that if we are not softened by what Christ has done on the cross, we will not be able to be able to fight temptation. That is, when we encounter temptation, look at the cost of what it took for Jesus to save you. But when we experience accusation, look at the reward of Jesus and his work on the cross, the righteousness freely given to you. Don't look to yourself, look to Jesus Christ. John puts it so well. He says in uh, his letter, the first letter, chapter three, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And then he writes earlier, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith is given to you that is what God sees when he looks at you, clean, washed by the blood, because Jesus took your filth on the cross. He took your fire that you deserve, the fire of God's wrath on the cross so that we could be clean, we can be accepted, and we can stand firm. The last observation of the Puritans, and I'll close with this, is that the Pur John Bunyan makes the observation that God doesn't give us armor for our back. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter six, you've got the breastplate, you've got the helmet, you've got the sword of the shield, the boots, the belt, but there's nothing on your back. And what is he saying is that God's defense, God's empowering you to fight against evil only works if you stand firm, if you resist. If you turn your back and run, your fate is going to be worse. And so stand firm, fight, and look to Jesus Christ.
Father, we come before you, recognizing that so often we get caught in this cycle of temptation and accusation, temptation and accusation, and many, many people are stuck because they constantly look to themselves and say, I've been good enough, I can give in to this, or I've been too bad, uh, I can never get out of this. Father, we don't want to look to ourselves anymore. We want to be forgetting ourselves and looking to Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who has washed us clean and that we belong to him. We can't brag. We were in the fire. We were plucked, but we were in the fire. And we can't take any credit and we can't have our failures overwhelm the finished work of Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to reject what Satan says about us. Though he reduces us to our evil, we know that fundamentally the most important part of us is as the, what the old hymn says. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. That is who we are, not our subconscious desires, not our failures, our life, who we are, is found in Jesus Christ. So we pray these things in his name.